When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I look at every single Prime Minister from Sir Johnny MacDonald all the way up to Justin Trudeau. If you like, you can support the podcast by going to Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I would also like to thank the people who have sent me emails saying they're really enjoying the podcast. It really makes my day to see those, and I really appreciate it. I would also like to say thank you to Dubliner87 and Uncle Jimmy, two people who left me a five-star review for this podcast. It's awesome that you guys are enjoying the podcast. It really makes my day to see these reviews, and I'm just liking that everybody is enjoying learning about Canada's amazing Prime Ministers. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups and Canadian History X, available on all podcast platforms. From 1935 to 1957, Canada was under a Liberal government, the longest stretch for a major political party in Canadian history. That streak came to an end thanks to the man they called Deef the Chief, but who history knows better as John Diefenbaker. Today I'm looking at the man from Saskatoon who rose to the highest level in the land. So let's begin. In writing his memoirs, Diefenbaker would say of his ancestors that they were, quote, dispossessed Scottish Highlanders and disconnected Palatine Germans, end quote. His father's family had come to Canada in the 1850s from Germany, and their name was Diefenbaker, rather than the current Diefenbaker. His mother's family had been in the country since Lord Selkirk set up the Red River Settlement in what would one day be Manitoba in 1814. Born on September 18, 1895 in Newstad, Ontario, to William and Mary Diefenbaker, Diefenbaker's childhood was focused mostly on education, with his father teaching and spreading an interest in history and politics to his son. One interesting fact about his father is that in 1903, he taught his son and 27 other students at a school near Toronto, and of those 28 students, four, including Diefenbaker, went on to serve as MPs in the House of Commons in 1940. Typically, the family would follow William as he went from one low-paying teaching job to another, and often money was tight. According to Diefenbaker, he told his mother when he was eight that he would be Prime Minister one day, and his father was heavily interested in politics and a supporter of the Liberal Party, ironic considering the path that his son would take. As a young man, Diefenbaker especially looked up to Sir Wilfrid Laurier, the Liberal Prime Minister at the time. Later in 1903, Diefenbaker moved with his family to Fort Carlton in what would one day be Saskatchewan to work at the Tiffgrund Public School District. His father would claim a patch of land at the same time in the area, and the family spent three cold winters on the land. In 1910, it was decided that John needed to have better access to schools, and the family moved to Saskatoon. It was also in Saskatoon that William found steady employment, working as a clerk for the Provincial Public Service, 
and then as an inspector in the customs office in 1911, where he would remain until he retired in 1937. While in Saskatoon, Diefenbaker is rumored to have had an interaction with Sir Wilfrid Laurier. Wilfrid was in Saskatoon and Diefenbaker would apparently sell him a newspaper, speaking with him for half an hour. Diefenbaker then ended the conversation saying, quote, I can't waste any more time on you, Prime Minister. I must get back to work. End quote. The spot where this interaction may have happened is now called Diefenbaker Corner, and a statue has also been erected depicting the meeting. There's some speculation about whether or not this meeting actually happened. I mean, it's quite unlikely that the Prime Minister would stand on a street corner for half an hour talking to a 10-year-old boy, but who knows? In 1963, during the election campaign, Diefenbaker told the story for the first time while speaking in Quebec, where Laurier remained immensely popular four decades after his death. The interaction was also described in a book called Laurier, the First Canadian, published in 1965. In the footnotes, the interaction's source information comes from Diefenbaker himself, with nothing backing it up beyond that. The main issue with the story is that from 1910 to 1963, Diefenbaker never related the story in any election campaign, which seems unlikely if you know Diefenbaker. After high school, Diefenbaker would attend the University of Saskatchewan, earning a Bachelor of Arts in 1915 and a Master of Arts in 1916. Soon after receiving his Master of Arts degree, Diefenbaker was commissioned as a lieutenant in the Canadian Expeditionary Force in May of 1916. In September, he was sent to England with 300 junior officers for training. According to Diefenbaker, he was hit with a shovel, although sometimes it's claimed to be a pickaxe, and sent home. No medical records back up the story, and it is believed that any injury he received was psychosomatic. He was discharged, but the official records suggest it was because he was judged medically unfit for, quote, general weakness, unquote. Upon his return, he was denied a pension that he sought on the grounds of disability. Returning to Canada, Diefenbaker articled in law and received his law degree in 1919, making himself the first person to earn three degrees from the University of Saskatchewan. On June 30, 1919, he was called to the bar and the next day opened up his law practice in Waco, Saskatchewan, located 90 kilometers northeast of Saskatoon. He would write later, quote, I received my call to the bar of Saskatchewan in June of that year and was looking around for a location in which to practice. After considering three different towns, I decided on Waco, as I felt it was a town with a future. I was attracted to the fact that Waco Lake was well established as a resort for a large number of Saskatoon people. End quote. The town already had a lawyer and the residents were loyal to him, which made it hard for Diefenbaker to find office space to rent. He was finally able to rent an empty lot and put up a wooden shack. In town, he was known as a tall, thin young man with deep blue eyes and wavy black hair, who dressed in a three-piece suit, making himself instantly recognizable. He would write, quote, When I arrived in Waco, July 1st, 1919, there was a lawyer already located there in the person of Mr. A.E. Stewart, and as the local citizens did not want another lawyer in town, it was impossible for me to rent office space. End quote. The first court case for Diefenbaker in his career would be a case involving the careless wounding with the rifle of another man. Diefenbaker was able to successfully argue the case, stating the shooting was not an error on the part of the shooter, but because of fading evening light. 
In his first year, he tried 62 jury trials, winning nearly half his cases and winning the approval of residents. It was also in Waco he first took his turn towards politics, running for the village council of Waco in 1920, winning and serving a three-year term. He would write of that election, quote, I decided to make my first bid for public office and was a candidate against Alex Andrew, who was one of the city councillors. The election prophets predicted that I would be defeated. A major part of my platform was that Waco ought to have a decent respectable cemetery in place of the then unkempt and disgraceful one. End quote. Through his work as a lawyer, Diefenbaker began to develop a reputation as a criminal defense lawyer. In the courtrooms, he would hone his deep and powerful voice that would become a hallmark during his time in the House of Commons. At the same time, he began to identify with the dispossessed and the poor, and those who lacked confidence in the government, which was liberal at the time. While visiting his parents on weekends, Diefenbaker would meet all of Freeman, and quickly fell in love. Sadly, she moved with her parents to Manitoba, but that would not be the last time the couple would cross paths. With Freeman gone, he would end up meeting Beth Newell, a cashier in Saskatoon, and in 1922, they became engaged. One year after the couple became engaged, Newell would get tuberculosis, and Diefenbaker broke off contact out of fear of getting the disease, and she would die the following year. On May 1, 1924, he moved to the larger northern community of Prince Albert, it was there that he would make his second attempt to run for politics. He kept his Waco law practice running, with his law partner running the business. That Waco law office would continue running until 1929. It was also around this time that he would come out as a conservative. It is believed that Diefenbaker may have chosen the conservative party because there was a little chance of him securing the liberal nomination from an established politician in the riding. Records do show that his name was put forward as a liberal, but it was rejected for nomination in that year's election, and he would instead shift to the Conservatives. In 1969, he would say about that choice, quote, I haven't spent a lifetime with this party. I chose it because of a certain basic principle, and those were the empire relations at the time, the monarchy, and the preservation of an independent Canada. End quote. While he aligned himself with the Conservative Party, he would disagree publicly in Prince Albert with the leader, Arthur Meehan. On June 19, 1925, Diefenbaker addressed a Conservative Organization committee and on August 6 was the party's candidate for Prince Albert. The campaign was especially heated, with Diefenbaker often being called a Hun due to his German surname. On October 29, 1925, the federal election was held, with Diefenbaker finishing third with less than half the votes of the winning Liberal. Soon after, Charles MacDonald, that Liberal candidate, resigned and gave his seat to Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King, who lost his own riding in Ontario. In 1926, Diefenbaker would make his first political journey out of Saskatchewan, travelling to the Conservative Convention in British Columbia. There, a journalist named William Bruce Hutchison would describe him as, quote, Tall, lean, almost skeletal, his bodily motions jerky and spasmodic, his face pinched and white, his parlor emphasized by metallic black curls and sunken hypnotic eyes. End quote. Hutchison would go on to say, quote, Yet, 
From this frail, wraith-like person, a voice of vehement power and rude health blared like a trombone. End quote. In the 1926 election, in which Diefenbaker ran again for the House of Commons, it's actually a very unique event in Canadian history. As his opponent was William Lyon Mackenzie King, it marks the only time that two future Prime Ministers have run directly against each other in the same riding. Not surprisingly, Diefenbaker lost to King with only 35.1% of the vote. In 1927, Diefenbaker went to Calgary for the Federal Leadership Convention, where future Prime Minister R.B. Bennett was chosen as leader. Diefenbaker would quickly become an admirer of Bennett and his efforts to rebuild the Conservative Party. Despite these two election failures, Diefenbaker was firm in his belief that he should be in politics. While he had little success in federal politics at the time, Diefenbaker would also run for the Saskatchewan legislature in 1929 and 1938, losing both times. He also tried to get into municipal politics, running for the mayor of Prince Albert in 1933, but he lost that as well. In the Prince Albert mayoral election, he would lose by only 48 votes. Through all of this, he was growing his reputation as a lawyer and was appointed to the King's Council in 1929. He would also marry Saskatoon teacher Edna Brower that same year. She would help Diefenbaker connect with future voters with her warmth and spontaneity, but according to some sources, Diefenbaker's mother disliked her as she felt she would be the top woman in her son's life. Beginning in 1927 and continuing until 1929, Diefenbaker would raise his profile in the province and nationwide by defending four men on charges of murder in four different cases. In The King v. Borden, his defendant was found not guilty. In The King v. Olson, his client was convicted of murder, but Diefenbaker was able to prevent the death penalty instead having it commuted to life in prison. In The King v. Ponesti, he also kept his client from being put to death. And in The King v. Wyosham, he defended his client stating that the murder was done by the victim's husband. Unfortunately, in this case, Diefenbaker was unsuccessful and Wyosham was hanged in the Prince Albert Jail in June of 1930. In his 20 years practicing law, he would keep 18 men from being put to death. In 1933, Diefenbaker was elected as the vice president of the Saskatchewan Conservative Party, beginning a smooth rise to the top office in the land a quarter century later. The first steps towards getting to be elected to a higher political station, successfully that is, came in 1936 when Diefenbaker was elected as the leader of the Saskatchewan Conservative Party. In the leadership convention held on October 28, 1936, 11 people were nominated for leader, including Diefenbaker. Of those, 10 deemed the party to be hopeless and withdrew, letting Diefenbaker win by default and he would preside over the party in the 1938 election when they won zero seats, picking up only 12% of the vote. Diefenbaker attempted to resign as leader, but this was refused, so he ran the provincial party out of his law office, paying party debts with his own money. Despite the political setbacks, Diefenbaker continued in his efforts to get elected, visiting many Saskatchewan communities with his wife Edna, and building up the organization of the party in the province. To those who doubted his chances of success, he just told them to keep the faith. Around 1939, Diefenbaker would seek the Conservative nomination for the Lake Centre riding. 
At the nominating convention, he spoke as a keynote speaker and then withdrew his name when it was proposed for nomination, stating that someone local should be elected. W.B. Kelly was then chosen as a winner among five other candidates, but he refused and told the delegates to select Diefenbaker. As a result, Diefenbaker was selected for the riding. In March of 1940, he finally achieved his political dream when he was elected to the House of Commons. In that election, he defeated the Liberal incumbent by only 1.9% of the vote, in just under 300 votes. In that election, the Conservatives suffered their worst defeat in history to that point, with only 39 seats out of 245 in the House of Commons. After five tries, Diefenbaker was finally going to the House of Commons and he would never lose another election for the rest of his life. On June 13, 1940, Diefenbaker made his first speech in the House of Commons, supporting wartime regulations, but he also stated that German Canadians were loyal to the country. In his memoirs, Diefenbaker would also state that he led an unsuccessful fight against the forced relocation of Japanese Canadians, but this has been disputed in official records. While Prime Minister King was on the other side of the aisle from Diefenbaker, Diefenbaker admired King for his political skills. Of course, on the other side, King found Diefenbaker to be an annoyance and was angered when Diefenbaker sought to censure the government. On one occasion, Diefenbaker went to a briefing on the war with two other conservatives and King screamed at Diefenbaker, who was technically a constituent of his writing, stating, quote, What business do you have here? You strike me to the heart every time you speak. End quote. From those early years, he would begin to use his legal skills to his advantage in the back bench of the opposition. He began to gain a reputation for his astute questioning of government actions, and his profile was growing. He established himself as one of the best critics of the government and the opposition, calling for conscription overseas. In 1942, Diefenbaker ran for leader of the Conservative Party finishing third with 13.8% of the vote on the first ballot and 9.1% of the vote on the second ballot. And while he did not win the leadership race, his speech that emphasized the need to preserve Canada in the British Empire and ensure the security of the common man enhanced his reputation in the party. In January of 1944, the King government introduced legislation for a family allowance plan. Diefenbaker would persuade the Conservatives, who were reluctant to support it, to in fact support it, and he would lead the party in the debate on the bill, which was passed unanimously in the House. Diefenbaker would be re-elected in 1945, picking up a larger share of the riding votes, showing his growing popularity and prominence in politics. The Conservatives also gained more seats, finishing with 67 to the Liberals' 125. While Bracken, the leader of the party, was quickly losing support in the Conservative Party, Diefenbaker would attack the government for keeping wartime regulations in place and ignoring the rights of individuals. He would also propose a Bill of Rights in 1946, stating that his goal was an unhyphenated nation where citizens of many origins and religions were treated equally. He would also block his own party's campaign to outlaw the Communist Party. By 1948, Mackenzie King was retiring, and Louis Saint Laurent was coming in as the new Prime Minister, and John Bracken, despite his success as the leader of the Conservatives, was unpopular in the party, and he would step down on July 17, 1948. Diefenbaker quickly announced his candidacy for leader. 
This time, he was up against George Drew, the popular Ontario Premier who had won three provincial elections to that point. The Conservative Party members also heavily favoured Drew over Diefenbaker, and Diefenbaker would lose on the first ballot with only 25% of the vote, almost 50% less than Drew. Whatever the Conservatives hoped for, though, the Conservatives collapsed in the 1949 election with only 41 seats, while the Liberals gained the largest majority in Canadian history to that point. And while Diefenbaker had raised his reputation within the Conservative Party, many saw him as aloof, a showman, and temperamental. For Diefenbaker, in 1949, he had his best election to date when he had almost half the votes in the riding and nearly 20% more than the next challenger. Diefenbaker would see his profile raised in Canada when he defended Jack Atherton, who was accused of causing a train crash at Canoe River, B.C. in 1950. In the incident, two trains collided, killing four crew members and 17 soldiers on their way to Korea. His wife would urge him to take on the case, as the defendant had grown up in his riding. Diefenbaker was able to successfully defend Atherton in what was known as the Canoe River case, who was found not guilty. Many consider this as a case that helped make the political career of Diefenbaker. The Liberals saw Diefenbaker as a rising star within the House of Commons, and they would begin to reorganize ridings, eventually removing the Lake Centre riding of Diefenbaker entirely and dividing its voters among three other ridings. For Diefenbaker, it was a difficult time for him, and he would see a terrible loss around the same time when his wife, Edna, was diagnosed with acute leukemia. Edna had always supported her husband's political career, but in the 1940s she began to suffer from mental illness and was placed in a private mental hospital for a brief time. She had fallen into a deep depression in 1945 and 1946, but improved in 1947. Unfortunately, her health would continue to decline and she passed away in February of 1951. With her death, Diefenbaker was overwhelmed with the loss, and several MPs, including Liberals, would publicly express eulogies for her in an unprecedented move in the House of Commons. Diefenbaker thought about retiring, and Drew was only one year older than him, so Diefenbaker did not think he would ever reach the leader level in the party. The only thing that kept him in politics at the time were the attempts by the Liberals to influence his loss in the next election, and Diefenbaker decided to fight for his seat. He would choose to stand in the riding of Prince Albert, and the last time a Conservative MP was elected there was 1911. In 1953, under the campaign slogan of Not a Partisan Cry, but a National Lead, Diefenbaker dominated voting in the riding in the election, winning by over 3,000 votes. He was the only Conservative MP elected in Saskatchewan in that election. That success came with an extra bit of happiness, as Diefenbaker married Olive Palmer, the woman he had courted back in Saskatoon, who would become a strong supporter of Diefenbaker's career for the rest of her life. Neither marriage produced any children. Diefenbaker was unable to crack into the leadership circle of Drew, but he remained loyal despite never being invited into the Five O'Clock Club, the group of Conservative MPs who met in Drew's office to talk and drink at the end of each day. Things began to change in 1955 with the belief among those in the Conservative Party that Drew would never lead the party to victory over the Liberals. In August of 1956, Drew grew sick and party members urged him to step aside as the party needed a new leader for the election that would soon be coming. 
he agreed and resigned in September. Diefenbaker immediately put his name in for leadership, but there continued to be opposition towards Diefenbaker in his own party, and a Stop Diefenbaker movement began in the Ontario wing of the party. Despite this opposition, the provincial parties in Ontario, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Manitoba all supported him. Unfortunately for his detractors, but fortunately for Diefenbaker, no candidate with his 16 years of experience came forward. Only Donald Fleming brought any sort of competition for Diefenbaker. And Diefenbaker was elected as leader on the first ballot with 60.3% of the vote. Mr. Drew's successor on the first ballot, John Diefenbaker, MP for Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and the party's foreign affairs critic. Mr. Diefenbaker thanked the delegates. There are no words uh, that will express my appreciation for the highest honor uh, that you can confer on a member of this party. And I say to you in all humility, that the great trust that you have given me, the trust of the party of MacDonald and of Cartier and their successors will be handed on by me to whoever my successor may be, unimpaired and enhanced to the limit of my capacity and my ability. A new PC leader in the next federal election. The critics of Diefenbaker and the party thought that since he was 61, he would not lead the party beyond one election and that it would be won by the Liberals anyways. As it turned out, they would be very wrong. On June 10, 1957, the federal election was scheduled and Parliament was dissolved on April 12th. Diefenbaker immediately went on the attack, especially over high taxes, failures to assist pensioners, and the lack of aid for poor provinces. Diefenbaker would run on a platform of changes to domestic policies, a new agricultural policy, and to reduce dependency on the United States for trade. In talking about the Conservative platform on April 30, 1957, he would say, quote, It is a program for United Canada, for one Canada, for Canada first, in every aspect of our political and public life, for the welfare of the average man and woman. End quote. In speaking with voters, Diefenbaker looked back to the days of Sir John E. Macdonald in an effort to win voters, stating, quote, We intend to launch a national policy of development in the northern areas, which may be called the New Frontier Policy. Macdonald was concerned with the opening of the West. We are concerned with the development in the provinces and in our northern frontier in particular. The North, with all its vast resources and hidden wealth, the wonder and the challenge of the North must become our national consciousness. End quote. Just before the election, a poll was held that showed the Liberals at 48% to 34% for the Conservatives. By the end of election night, after early gains by the Liberals, the Conservatives were victorious. Diefenbaker's Conservatives took 112 seats, an increase of 61 seats from the previous election, and the Liberals fell by 64 seats. For the first time since 1935, Canada would have a Conservative Prime Minister. 
I'm standing in front of the stucco and wood home, 50 years old, in which Prince Albert's favorite son and hero has lived for the past 10 years. Throughout the past week, this home has been the focal point of Mr. Diefenbaker's many activities. So it's fortunate that he moved to this larger house after living for many years in a small bungalow just a few blocks away. The whole city has been buzzing with excitement of the election results. On Prince Albert's Central Avenue, Mr. Diefenbaker can hardly move an inch without meeting old friends and well-wishers. Old folk and young folk alike come in for a few kind words from this 61-year-old conservative leader. One of Mr. Diefenbaker's most frustrating experiences this week was trying to get his hair cut. He finally managed to get into a barber's chair, and his old friend Dave Fairweather went to work on him. At his home, the telephone has been ringing for 24 hours a day. Long-distance phone calls have been coming in from all over Canada, and Mrs. Diefenbaker has answered many of them. Thousands of telegrams have been received, and there's a constant stream of messengers coming up to the house to deliver them. Mr. Diefenbaker loves to fish, and he did get away for a few hours one day to try his luck at Lac L'Orange, a beautiful lake north of Prince Albert. I think the fishing was better for him during last Monday's election, but his party came home with seven fish, two of which he caught himself. Due to the 22 years between 1935 and 1957, Diefenbaker had only one MP, Earl Rowe, who had served in federal government office when he took office as Prime Minister on June 21, 1957. Rowe was not a fan of Diefenbaker and was not given a post in the government, and Diefenbaker would state that he had to make a cabinet composed of his enemies. In the government, Diefenbaker would make history by appointing Ellen Fairclough as Secretary of State for Canada, making her the first woman appointed to a cabinet post. He also appointed Michael Starr as the Minister of Labour, making him the first Canadian of Ukrainian descent to serve in cabinet. On October 14th, Queen Elizabeth II opened Parliament, the first time a Canadian monarch had done so, and Diefenbaker's Conservatives got to work bringing in tax cuts and increasing old-age pensions. Despite not having a majority, Diefenbaker and the minor parties worked together, and the Liberals were dealing with the retirement of Louis Saint Laurent, which limited their abilities to oppose the government at the time. Diefenbaker wanted another election on the hope that he would gain a majority, but it was unlikely that the Governor-General would agree to this, as it happened 30 years previous with Arthur Meehan and William Lyne Mackenzie King. Lester B. Pearson had been appointed as a Liberal leader, and he called for the Progressive Conservatives to resign to allow the Liberals to form a government. In response, Diefenbaker spoke for two hours straight, causing Pearson to write in his memoirs that his first attack on the government was not only a failure, it was a fiasco. He would say that Diefenbaker, quote, tore me to shreds, end quote. Paul Martin Sr., a prominent liberal, would call it one of the greatest devastating speeches in the House of Commons history. Eventually, an election was called for March 31, 1958. At the time, the Conservatives were enjoying a huge amount of public support. On February 12th, at the opening campaign rally in Winnipeg, the doors of the hall had to be closed because it was filled to capacity. Those doors were broken down by the crowd soon after. In this election, Diefenbaker pledged to focus on his concept of his vision, again focusing on the North, and he would say, quote, 
This is the vision. One Canada, one Canada, where Canadians will have preserved to them the control of their own economic and political destiny. Sir John A. Macdonald saw Canada from east to west. He opened the west. I see a new Canada, a Canada of the north. This is the vision. End quote. He would go on to say at another rally, quote, Everywhere I go, I see the uplift in people's eyes that comes from raising their sights to see the vision of Canada in the days ahead. End quote. The Conservatives picked up an astonishing 97 seats, finishing with 208, while the Liberals had 48. With that election, Diefenbaker's government won the largest majority in Canadian history and the second largest percentage of the popular vote with 53.67%. The Conservatives won the majority of seats and votes in every province except British Columbia and Newfoundland. In his victory speech, Diefenbaker would say, quote, the Conservative Party has become truly a national party composed of all the people of Canada, of all races, united in the concept of one Canada. End quote. We will keep your faith, honour our pledges, and give you, to the best of our ability, good government for the benefit of the greatest number of Canadians. The jubilation at Mr. Diefenbaker's victory party defied description. Cheers finally subsided, the Prime Minister restated his political credo. History that has come to me on this occasion is, as you say, one that has never been equaled in the history of this country. And I don't regard it as a, a personal victory or as a party victory. I look upon it as a victory of democracy in action, where the men and women of the nation join together on behalf of that Canadianism, which after all is the desire of all of us. As Prime Minister, Diefenbaker would bring in several huge changes to Canada. One of the most significant was the sale of wheat to China and new agricultural reforms that revitalized the agricultural industry of Western Canada. In 1958, he nominated James Gladstone, the first Indigenous member of the Canadian Senate. Also that year, Diefenbaker took a tour of the British Commonwealth, which solidified his belief in the supporting of the non-white Commonwealth members. At first, Diefenbaker had a policy of not criticizing the South African government. In 1960, though, South Africa applied to remain in the Commonwealth regardless of whether or not it became a republic in a public referendum. Diefenbaker would privately state that he had a great dislike for apartheid, and after South Africa became a republic on October 5th, Diefenbaker proposed that South Africa could be in the Commonwealth if it condemned apartheid. Instead, South Africa withdrew its application and left the Commonwealth. As far as we are concerned in Canada, the people of South Africa, I say this, that we were carrying out internationally within the Commonwealth the policies which we had adopted for Canada and represented our viewpoint in Canada in the culmination, culminating in the Bill of Rights. And I say this, 
South Africa's severance from the Commonwealth, self-imposed exile, though it be, we can have but genuine regret, assuaged by faith that from all this truly a watershed of history, justice and right will emerge in the end. This is not an hour for recrimination or for malice. Somebody ridiculed me because I said we must approach this problem with infinite compassion. That's a course I've followed through the years, and I, it keeps one from saying things about those with whom you disagree, but you don't have to recall afterwards with regret. And I, I have followed that course. And my, ferv my fervent hope is this, that they will return to the Commonwealth in due course. And for such a return, there will always be a light in the Commonwealth window. Diefenbaker would initially have a very good relationship with the Americans as well. Dwight Eisenhower made an effort to have good relations with Diefenbaker, and the two soon found that they had a love of fishing and both had a Western farming background. Diefenbaker would later write, quote, I might add that President Eisenhower and I were from our first meeting on an Ike John basis, and that we were as close as the nearest telephone. End quote. Thanks to this good relationship, Diefenbaker would approve plans to join the United States in what would become known as NORAD, despite liberal misgivings that it was committing Canada to a system without consultation. The relationship between Eisenhower and Diefenbaker, though, was not the same as would be had with JFK. But more on that later. On July 1, 1960, Diefenbaker would introduce the Canadian Bill of Rights into Parliament, which was quickly passed and proclaimed on August 10th. As a trial lawyer, Diefenbaker had always been concerned with civil liberties, and this bill was a lifetime goal. He would say, quote, I know something of what it has meant in the past for some to regard those with names of other than British or French origin as not being that kind of Canadian that those British and French origin claim to be. End quote. That same year, Diefenbaker extended voting rights to all Indigenous people in Canada. This was part of his goal of One Canada, a policy that sought equality for all Canadians. For this reason, he would not make special concessions for Quebec francophones, which would lead to the erosion of support for the party in the province. While Diefenbaker did not appoint any Quebecers to senior positions in cabinet, he did recommend Georges Vanier for Governor-General, the first French-Canadian to hold the post. Diefenbaker's government operated under the concept of creating an umbrella of social justice. With this system, Diefenbaker's government would restructure programs to help those in need while also creating the National Productivity Council, which became the Economic Council of Canada. He also pushed for increased public awareness of the Canadian North, leading to greater economic development in the region. His government would also set a date to begin federal support of provincial hospital insurance, rather than waiting for provinces to join the plan. This would continue Canada's move towards creating universal health care in the 1960s. With such a huge majority, Diefenbaker would see a great amount of criticism levied his way for a variety of decisions. Many accused him of running a one-man government, and the cabinet ministers he appointed were not really brilliant at their job, and his long cabinet meetings rarely came to a consensus. 
While Diefenbaker would bring many changes, he was noted for being unskilled in compromise, and he preferred debate in the House of Commons to the long-term promotion of his ideas. As the attacks against him began to grow, his lawyer background caused him to focus more on the dramatic and suspicions than on calm judgment and a united political team. In 1959, his government would controversially cancel the Avro Arrow program, which remains one of the most controversial decisions of his entire time as Prime Minister. The jet was a supersonic jet designed to defend Canada in the event of a Soviet attack. The program soon began to develop cost overruns, and the RCAF would state it only needed nine squadrons of the plane, not 20. The Americans were also unwilling to commit to a purchase of the aircraft from Canada, despite successful test flights. In September of 1958, Diefenbaker stated that the program would be under review for six months. Eventually, on February 20, 1959, the cabinet voted to cancel the program. This resulted in the immediate firing of 14,000 employees, and Diefenbaker was blamed for the firings. I'm going to have an episode on this coming up in a few months, and I'll go into greater detail about the program. Wouldn't it have been much easier for me on behalf of the government to have continued the Arrow? It was a beautiful aircraft. Wonderful. Didn't operate very far. But it was, a, it was a fine example of workmanship. I had to make, in the finality, that decision. For over every prime minister's desk hangs, hangs that motto that was referred to one time by President Truman. The buck stops here. If he makes a decision that's wrong, it can't be repaired. All prime ministers who've been successful in this country have been condemned because they did not make off-the-cuff decisions. Well, I realized what would happen in connection with the arrow. When one's faced with a problem like this, there is a higher source of strength. If one doesn't have that higher source of strength, he can never bear the attacks made on him. Or the statements that one wouldn't make about anyone in private life. He has to have that strength and that faith. He has to believe. He has to be assured that ultimately right is going to triumph. This came to me. I knew that 10,000 men and women would be out of work ultimately by this decision. I knew that a great industry that had been established would be weakened, but it was right to end it. The biggest issue for Diefenbaker, though, was the debate about allowing nuclear weapons on Canadian soil, called the Bormac Missile Crisis. John F. Kennedy had requested that nuclear weapons be stationed in Canadian soil as part of NORAD, and Diefenbaker was initially in favour of this, but on August 3, 1961, a letter from Kennedy was leaked to the media and Diefenbaker withdrew his support. Around the same time, a huge demonstration against nuclear weapons was held on Parliament Hill, and a petition of 142,000 names was created. In 1962, the Americans were concerned about the lack of commitment from Canada to have nuclear weapons on its soil. Canadian and American officials began to work together to quietly launch a campaign to advocate for a Canadian agreement to acquire warheads. Kennedy was typically quite cool with Diefenbaker, 
and he even invited Pearson to the White House's Nobel Prize winner and met him privately for 40 minutes. This greatly angered Diefenbaker, who saw it as a slight. One story tells that after his first meeting with Diefenbaker, Kennedy would say to his brother, Robert, quote, I don't want to see that boring son of a bitch again, end quote. Kennedy had such a dislike for Diefenbaker that he would even allow his pollster, Lou Harris, to work for the Liberals without it being known widely. Kennedy would also visit Ottawa, but spent most of his time talking to Pearson at a formal dinner, and both Kennedy and his wife Jackie stated that they were bored by Diefenbaker's anecdotes during a lunch, and that Jackie would describe the lunch as, quote, painful, end quote. Diefenbaker often compared himself to his rival Lester B. Pearson, who he often showed open resentment towards. While Pearson had made an impact on the international scene, Diefenbaker would try and do the same. He would have both the British Prime Minister and President Eisenhower invited to Ottawa, and he would tour Europe and the Asian Commonwealth. He would meet with heads of state including French President Charles de Gaulle. He would tour through Pakistan, India and Sri Lanka. And on September 26, 1960, he gave a speech in front of the General Assembly of the United Nations denouncing the Soviet Union. By this time, the press gallery was openly disillusioned towards the government and its Prime Minister. Many felt Diefenbaker was disorganized and becoming increasingly indecisive. James Stewart of the Montreal Star would say on June 18, 1962, that Parliament was, quote, sometimes aimless, often ill-tempered, and always potentially explosive, end quote. In the fall of 1962, Diefenbaker's government would be re-elected but lost 89 seats, falling to 116, while the Liberals picked up 49 to finish with 99. What had been the largest majority in Canadian history was now reduced to a minority government. And while the Bormack missile crisis and the cancellation of the Avro Aero program contributed heavily to this, other issues such as the loss of support in Quebec and the devaluing of the Canadian dollar also had a hand in the loss of seats. While Diefenbaker had lost, he had led a vigorous campaign, and the Global Mail would state, quote, The Conservative campaign has been essentially a one-man show with Mr. Diefenbaker the man. If they fail to win, he must take the blame. If they do win, he can claim the victory, no matter how many seats they lose, for his own. End quote. During the October 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy appealed for Allied solidarity, but Diefenbaker was hesitant, which angered many of his cabinet ministers. And the issue over nuclear weapons in Canada was not going away either. The NATO Supreme Commander, on a visit to Canada on June 3, 1969, stated that if Canada did not accept nuclear weapons, it was not doing its part in NATO. Diefenbaker saw this as a plot to bring down his government, initiated by Kennedy, and the press began to blame Diefenbaker over the issue of nuclear weapons. Diefenbaker would not take a firm stance of yes or no on nuclear weapons, but in a speech on January 25th, many saw it as supporting nuclear warheads in Canada, but some saw the speech as against nuclear warheads. On June 30th, the U.S. State Department sent out a press release stating that Diefenbaker made misstatements in his speech, and for the first time in history, Canada recalled its ambassador from Washington in protest. The issue not only divided many in Canada, but it divided the cabinet of Diefenbaker as well. With that election collapse, Diefenbaker was dealing with an internal revolt within the party, and members of his cabinet attempted to have him removed from leadership and as prime minister. 
Six of his cabinet ministers were in favor of removing him as leader. And at a cabinet meeting, Diefenbaker asked that the ministers who supported him to stand, and only half did. The government would soon fall in a motion of non-confidence, and the election campaign would open with the Liberals up 15 points, and many felt the Liberals would gain a majority. Diefenbaker was not prepared to let that happen, and he would put everything he could into winning the election. Diefenbaker traveled the entire country, nearly all of it by rail, and was almost alone on the campaign trail. Many described him as the old Diefenbaker, and he revived the contact with the people of the country. But, on April 8, 1963, the Liberals picked up 129 seats to the Conservatives' 95. Not enough for an absolute majority, and Diefenbaker would hold on to power for several days until six Quebec Social Credit MPs signed a statement stating that Pearson should form the government. Diefenbaker would soon resign, ending his time as Prime Minister. I wish to extend to Mr. Pearson publicly on this occasion, as I've already done personally, my congratulations and good wishes. It's a salient tribute of our system that the transfer of office should be conducted in a well-ordered manner and spirit. Indeed, Canada's present and future destiny, which is the objective of all of us without regard to party, is above the bounds of partisan controversy, difference, and dissent. In the last two weeks, I've received many letters and messages, kindly ones, and among them, many urging me not to resign as Prime Minister at this time, but to meet Parliament and leave the decision as to what party shall constitute the government to those of our own and the third parties, which together represent a substantial majority of the Canadian electorate. In my opinion, to have followed this course under all the circumstances would not have been constitutionally proper or possible. What matters most now to all of us as Canadians is the future of our country. And whatever may have been said by some in the heat of partisan debate, there must be pride in the hearts and minds of fair-minded Canadians that Canada is today a strong, progressive, and a prosperous nation. Many felt that the election was actually the finest moment of the political career of Diefenbaker, who carried the party himself to limit the victory of the Liberals. Diefenbaker would find his new role in the leader of the opposition especially enjoyable, as he was able to question the Liberal government to such an extent that it began to slow down the government. This was seen most in his intense opposition during the Canadian flag debate, which finally ended when his own party members invoked closure rather than continue on the debate. I covered this last month in my episode on the Great Canadian Flag Debate, so check it out. In 1966, the Munsinger affair erupted when two officials of the Diefenbaker government had slept with a woman suspected of being a Soviet spy. A royal commission was held, and while it found no security breach, it faulted Diefenbaker for not dismissing the ministers in question. The Liberals would win the 1965 election, with a minority government again, and the beginning of the end was coming for Diefenbaker as leader of the Conservatives. Behind the scenes, work was beginning to remove Diefenbaker from his leadership role. Throughout the 1960s, there was a growing resentment over Diefenbaker within the party. Despite this, and with the party split over his leadership, Diefenbaker refused to resign. Dalton Camp would even propose a change to the party constitution requiring an automatic vote 
on whether to hold a leadership convention in the face of a loss of a general election. Diefenbaker met this with accusations of backstabbing, and it failed to be approved, but he did agree to a leadership convention for 1967. During the leadership convention, this revolt was seen literally in how everything was put together. There were allegations of vote rigging and even violence, and seats were arranged so that when Diefenbaker addressed delegates, viewers on television would only see unmoved delegates in the first ten rows. While giving his speech, Diefenbaker was also shouted down by his critics. Diefenbaker did put up a strong defense, but in the end, Robert Stanfield was chosen as the new leader of the party. In that leadership vote, Diefenbaker, the man who had led the party to its greatest triumph and had served as its head for the past decade, would not make it past the third ballot. In the first ballot, he had 12.1% of the vote, then 7.8% of the vote on the second ballot, and finally only 5.2% of the vote on the third ballot. Diefenbaker would speak to delegates following his loss, saying, quote, My course has come to an end. I have fought your battles, and you have given me that loyalty that led us to victory more often than the party has ever seen since the days of Sir Johnny MacDonald. In my retiring, I have nothing to withdraw in my desire to see Canada, my country, and your country, one nation. End quote. Your attention, please. We have received the following signed document. I hereby withdraw as a candidate for the leadership of the PC Party of Canada, dated Toronto, September 9, 1967, signed John G. Diefenbaker. Are you still on the race? Yes, sir. Are you still on the race? Sir, there's a report that you're withdrawn. I have nothing to say at this time. I have dinner. My fellow conservatives, I join with all of you welcoming the new leader of this party, the Honorable Bob For him, I ask, above everything else, loyalty from the rank and file of this party. Now taking my retirement, I say this to you with the deepest of feelings. My country, I have nothing to withdraw in my desire to see Canada one country, one nation, my country and your Diefenbaker would not leave politics, though, and continued to serve in the House of Commons. Despite being a former Prime Minister, he was still relegated to the back bench, a highly unusual move for the party. After the retirement of Prime Minister Pearson, Diefenbaker would develop a relationship of mutual respect with Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Of course, the Conservatives would suffer a loss of 25 seats in the 1968 election, giving Trudeau a majority. For Diefenbaker, he did an interview with CBC after the election, and he was barely able to hide his delight in the humiliation of his opponent, Robert Stanfield.
1972, when Pearson died of cancer, Diefenbaker was asked if he had any kind words for Pearson. Diefenbaker would only say, quote, He shouldn't have won the Nobel Prize. End quote. In the 1972 election, Diefenbaker was the only living Prime Minister, and he would take his riding by 11,000 votes, continuing his domination in Prince Albert. In 1976, Diefenbaker was created a Companion of Honour by Queen Elizabeth II, bestowed as a personal gift. Sadly, on December 22nd of that year, his wife Olive died, and Diefenbaker was plunged into a deep depression. In the 1979 federal election, he won a seat for the 13th time and saw the Conservatives return to power under the leadership of Joe Clark. Diefenbaker was not actually a fan of Clark, who he called a pipsqueak and an upstart. And during the election campaign, Diefenbaker suffered a mild stroke, but he stated to the media he only had the flu. If only Oliver here. She was with me through the years. No one will ever be able to adequately express my debt to her. In all my years, in public life, and I saw the mountain peaks, and I saw the valleys of defeat, and you've never either in victory or defeat seen me in a state of, of exhilaration or despondency. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here. Here, here. Sadly, Diefenbaker would only live a few more months. He would die of a heart attack on August 16, 1979 in Ottawa. This is a special edition of The World at Six. John George Diefenbaker, Member of Parliament and former Prime Minister of Canada, is dead at the age of 83. Mr. Diefenbaker, who led a conservative government from 1957 to 1963, died of a sudden heart attack at his home in Ottawa this morning. He died an active politician. To no one's surprise, he was re-elected this past spring as MP for the riding of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. In a message from Buckingham Palace, the Queen said Canada has lost a man of great stature, and she applauded his loyalty to both his country and the crown. A statement from the White House called him a statesman who served his country with distinction. But the most personal tributes came from his political colleagues and opponents. First, Prime Minister Clark. He was a, a great human force who changed the history of our country and who became a symbol of the resilient strength of the Canadian individual. He has come in later years to be known as a formidable parliamentarian, and he was always that. But he was also our first populist prime minister who reached out to the underprivileged and to the ignored. His government changed the focus of national policy to develop all of the regions of this country and to extend social justice to Canadians in need. He opened our political system and he made it competitive. Internationally, he was a spokesman for the rights of the individual, whether in the Soviet Union or in Africa or here at home. He was undeniably a national figure, yet all of us have personal memories of the man. I am of the generation whose interest in the potential of our country 
was awakened by his great vision of what this nation could be. An elaborate funeral, the most elaborate in Canadian history, and planned by Diefenbaker himself, along with the Secretary of State Department, was held. He would lay in state in the Hall of Honour in Parliament for over three days, as 10,000 Canadians passed his casket. On his casket, he had the Canadian flag obscured by the Red Ensign, as a last act of defiance, from his opposition during the flag debate. His body was taken across Canada by train to be buried in Saskatoon, behind the John Diefenbaker Centre at the University of Saskatchewan. To date, he is the only Prime Minister to be buried in Western Canada. Many locations, especially in Saskatchewan, have been named for Diefenbaker. Lake Diefenbaker, the largest lake in southern Saskatchewan, is named for him, as is the Diefenbaker Bridge in Prince Albert, and the Saskatoon John G. Diefenbaker International Airport. His home in Prince Albert, where he lived from 1947 to 1975, is now a museum and a National Historic Site. Diefenbaker would also inspire Joe Clark and Brian Mulrooney, and under the leadership of Stephen Harper, a new federal building, a human rights award, and an ice-breaking vessel would be named for Diefenbaker. Maclean's magazine would rank Diefenbaker 13th among the first 20 Prime Ministers to Jean Chrétien, and his rating would improve to 10th in the publication by 2011. Love him or hate him, Dief the Chief was arguably one of our most interesting Prime Ministers. I hope you enjoyed that episode on John Diefenbaker, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy McCallum, Diane Wade, Laurie-Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from The Star Phoenix, The Canadian Encyclopedia, HistoryMuseum.ca, Wikipedia, Biography, Collections Canada, The Canada Guide, Archives of Canada, 80 Years in Wakao, 1898-1978, and Prince Albert, the First Century. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.